What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. So today's episode of Innovation and Leadership is sponsored by Skillshare. They're an online learning platform with over 22,000 classes. I looked it up. It's business and marketing and technology and design and data science and web development. You name it, they've got it. The one I'm probably most interested in taking next is by Simon Sinek, the guy with that super famous TED Talk. Um, it's about presentation essentials, and uh, I'm just a big fan of him. I think it's cool they've actually got a class by him on the platform. If you want to check that one out or any of the other ones, um, if you go to Skillshare.com slash leader, our listeners get a deal. You can get uh, two months of unlimited access for 99 cents. So you get all these 22,000 classes uh, as much as you want for those two months for the 99 cents at uh, Skillshare.com slash leader. So one last time, Skillshare.com slash leader. Check it out. This is Ideation Collective. I'm Jess. Today on the show, we've got Dan Baird. Dan's an entrepreneur, he's a world traveler, been to 40 countries, lived in Venezuela and China. Uh, he's an adventurer, got lost at sea on his honeymoon on a shark dive, we'll have to hear about that. Dan worked at $12 billion ConAgra and, uh, and was part of an alternative furniture startup called Lovesack. The biggest mistake in crowdfunding is having that relationship in the first place, and that requires both talking and listening. Now, you're saying the relationship with the potential buyer, the, the potential crowd. contributor, the crowd. With okay. the crowd. Um, it's about getting in uh, front of them. It's about proving that you're both listening and able to talk. I mean, having something cool makes it a lot easier because it's really easy to talk about cool stuff. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. If you like what you hear, we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports, and presentations, but only for members of the collective. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website, which is iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founders started called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping to build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more about that, please come to the Child Rescue section on our website, iCollective.co slash Child Rescue. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Today on the show, we've got Dan Baird. Dan's an entrepreneur. He's a world traveler, been to 40 countries, lived in Venezuela and China. Uh, he's an adventurer, got lost at sea on his honeymoon on a shark dive. We'll have to hear about that. Um, Dan worked at $12 billion ConAgra and, uh, and was part of an alternative furniture startup called Lovesack, uh, which is probably a great place to start. Dan, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thank you for the incredibly kind intro. Appreciate that. So um, tell us a little bit about uh, the the exciting rise of, uh, of this furniture company. And first, tell us what a love sack is. <laughs> um, if you haven't seen them, a love sack is you know, a six-foot, eight-foot diameter beanbag that's stuffed with uh, closed-cell memory foam and Lazy Boy foam instead of the styrofoam peanuts. And it basically means that they puff up. They get huge. They're incredibly comfortable. They puff up and shrink down and 
Uh, we kind of figured out a patented process to use vacuums, high-powered vacuums, to shrink them down to duffel bags that would fit in the trunk of a Honda Prelude. And that way people could buy them at a mall, take them home, rip them open, and have them expand to be the bigger than the, the couch that they sat on. Uh, it was a really fun, cool concept. So, I mean, I had friends who, who were living out there when that company was blowing up, and they, people were, like, replacing their couches with them. Um, when you <laughs> yes. think about, like, just... I mean, they went from nothing to I mean, twenty million dollars in sales. Couldn't keep them on the shelves. What do you What do you ascribe that rapid rate of interest in them to? What do you think it was? Um, it, part of it's the classic idea of just having a product that people really love. I mean, it had kind of the the wow factor, that unexpected, just kind of. Um, that kind of surprised, woohoo! I mean, just we could surprise people left, right, and center. Sitting in them, it was way more comfortable than you'd think anything could be. Um, we uh, we timed and did a lot of the work to make sure that we uh, showed up during the Olympics. Like the first retail stores that we opened were right before the Olympics showed up in Salt Lake City, uh, which meant that we had a ton of people to go see the idea all over the world. Uh, and uh, the the whole power and impact of just having something that was so novel, so different. Um, was one of those things that I learned as far as a business lesson uh, that was just one that's really stuck with me to this day. The power of the unexpected and the novel, it has like exponential impacts on people's just psyche. It is a fantastic tool for entrepreneurs to use. usually costs almost nothing. And uh, the experience sticks with the consumer a really, really long time. Yeah. Um, I know, you know, as we've talked and got to know each other, you've told me there's a lot of learning experiences from, from that entrepreneurial venture. Oh, oh yeah. Why don't you share some of the war stories with us? Why don't you tell us some of the learning experiences? Oh, man. Um, so that one was just kind of explosive growth and based on a lot of hard hard objects, hard inventory and materials. Um, I remember we'd, we'd been doing like manual stuffing, if you will. Um, the first love sack was, was built in kind of the idea was come up with a guy uh, by the name of Sean Nelson uh, that's a buddy who was dating my sister at the time, and my mom helped them kind of sew this huge thing. The idea was just to take to the drive-in movie theaters. Stuffed it, full, filled it full of styrofoam peanuts and camping, sleeping mats and everything else that we could find. Um, and the thing just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then um, at the drive-in, people just kept asking for it and asking for it and asking for it. Um, that thing for three-ish years was at that level, where it was just friends, family asking for it. I mean, you never really heard about it. Uh, a handful of sales. I mean, I think Red Bull ordered, I think, 10 from us, and that was a huge, huge order at the time. And in a factory that's actually even not even too far from where we are here, uh, we got an industrial tree branch shredder. And yes, here's where the sexy part comes in. I used to sit back there with these bales of hay, bales of foam that were four by eight feet, they weighed about 500 pounds. And uh, I would clip the bales, and these things would have foam in them that was compressed paper thin that when it expanded would be four inches thick, three inches thick, just huge, and it was all scrap. I used to sit back there with a kitchen knife and cut them into strips and then shove those strips into a tree branch shredder. Literally the least sexy work on the planet. Um, but on paper, I was a quote-unquote production manager. And at the time, this was what, like 1999, the economy sucked. Um, it was right after the dot-com bust. You couldn't find jobs. I remember competing with people that had master's degrees for just admin work. And uh, Sean called as a buddy and just said, hey, I need some help. I need someone that can help me kind of pick this, this up. We need a little bit more kind of uh, growth. And that was my first sexiest job ever was um, 
and I didn't even hit him up for like money. I don't. I remember like it wasn't even a. I don't even think we discussed money for months into the arrangement. But it was one of those. Yeah, I want to work on this. It sounds like fun. Let's see. And it was growing so fast that shredding foam by hand turned into. Well, now we have to build a factory. Turned into. I mean, you know, Les Wexner and some of the guys from uh, the Limited Two ended up buying a quarter million box. I mean, we largely went from something like forty thousand dollars a year in sales to probably four or five hundred thousand dollars in sales in the second half of what was no that was like 2001 yeah because the olympics was 2002 so um that growth meant hey we sold a quarter million and he has a really cool story if everyone wants to hear that they should go look it up because it's a long one but it's a good one of uh talking the limited two into giving us six figures we used all that to buy factory and farm equipment create a really, really bootstrapped factory downtown that didn't have insulation. Our forklifts fell through the floor because it was a wood floor. And guess what you cannot do is drive a forklift on a wood floor. And uh, yeah, literally the first day, forklift fell through the floor. And I remember propping it up and prying it out. The uh, man, that we went from that tree branch shredder to a hay buster, which was this 3,000-pound it was meant to shred 3,000 pound bales of hay like nothing. Foam would jam it like nothing. Like it would, we'd drop foam in going, yeah, here we go, and immediately broke the machinery. And then we had to jump in, and there was two or three guys inside of that hay buster by hand trying to unclog this foam. I still have scars on my arms from this stuff. Um, but it, it literally went from it's you by yourself doing um, this production to you're 19 years old, and I think I had 27 employees like. Four months later, um, we had to go to temp agencies and stuff like that, uh, build all the tables, the manufacturing equipment. And uh, the other guys at the time went and opened stores. And my job was just to try to keep the inventory on the shelves, which there was there was no humanly way possible that that was even doable. But it was a fantastic lesson in there is a way over, around, and through absolutely any problem there is out there. Um, the, the, the solution is basically just inversely correlated to how determined you are to find that solution. It's there. It's just how bad do you want? So you, you go from this, you know, 10 times growth of 40,000, you know, on track for 40,000 to, to 10 times that. And then from half million a year to 20 million a year, Tell me about um, the growing pains or, or the things that you, uh, the lessons you learned the hard way being a part of a company with that, that much growth all at once. Uh, funding. <laughs> funding. Um, at the time, VCs had a really bad reputation. I mean, it was, I don't know if you remember this, but VCs used to be the equivalent of these guys are, they are there, they're vultures, they do nothing but take over your company. That's all they do. That's, they're pirates, they're sharks, they're whatever. Um, and so we avoided it and we went way out of our way to try to just, uh, fund our own growth by reinvesting literally all of it. I mean, I think we were making like nine bucks an hour. There was a short time later where I did the math on my work hours when we opened some retail stores and I calculated I was making $2 and 75 cents an hour for about three months during Christmas, which was the worst time of the year. Um, not sexy stuff, uh, funding your own growth, especially when you have that kind of a growth curve. You know, even with really good profit margins is, I won't say a sucker's game, but it's almost a sucker's game. You can have good profits and still run yourself into the ground. I mean, literally, if you if you have to triple your inventory orders every single time you order, it's only a matter of time to watch your cash balances go through the floor and eventually you run out of cash. Um, that was one of the main lessons is just having that proper funding in place. Uh, 
I don't know if they'll get mad at me for saying this, but there was one point where there was an $89,000 credit card bill on my desk. 89 grand. And this was a personal credit card. I mean, even today, 10 years later, I don't know any, I don't know. I'm sure I do have friends that have $100,000 uh, credit card balances or at least limits on their credit cards. Um, but we literally did anything we could to try to find bank loans and stuff. That was a sucker's game. I mean, um, you know, we were four or five uh, white guys from a pretty comfortable background as far as the grand scheme of things goes. And so banks weren't too interested in it. The company didn't have enough of a track record at the time. Uh, and uh, funding was one of those things that forced us to make a lot of really hard decisions and probably the wrong ones when it came to really high growth. I mean, it's one of the reasons I actually kind of got out of it. I mean, after the production stuff and we moved operations overseas, I moved in and opened a bunch of retail stores in Santa Clara and in Arizona, and I ran the retail side of the business. But eventually, after three or four years of it, it was good money, and I was, uh, I can't remember how much I made, but I was probably making more than anyone else my age at the time, like, you know, right near six-figure type stuff. Um, and I just remember just going, you can't live like this. I'm putting out, I've been putting out fires for five years now. There has to be a better way to actually operate in business. Um, and it's one of the reasons I decided to go back to school. So uh, funding was a big, big, big one. Interesting. So, um, you know, we were talking about different approaches to business and kind of some different categories. You think about the, the kind of stuff you did with IDEO at ConAgra, the kind of stuff you do now, fundraising campaigns on specifically as a crowdfunding expert and, and working on the child rescue campaign right now on Indiegogo, which we super appreciate. Um, when you, when you think about what you've invented now at Crack the Crowd, the kind of things you used to do at ConAgra, um, thinking about the principle of, of having something awesome, like having a product that's legitimately has an unfair advantage over the competition. You know, there's the innovation of coming up with something that has an unfair advantage, and then there's the iterations to, con you know, continually make that product fit, uh, product market fit happen. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, what are what are some of the things that um, as you've got better at that game that that were not obvious? Like what what do you wish you would have known earlier about that kind of thing? I can't, the there's a little thing, man. I'll even give you a link to it. Um, we it's called concepting, uh, but everyone hears about like minimum viable product and stuff. A lot of people have heard about like rapid prototyping. Um, I can take the same product and I can write. 25 different positions for that type of product. And I do this little exercise that you take a single sheet of paper, you write less than 200 words on it, but you go through, you throw up a picture that kind of reinforces how you're trying to sell it. Um, this little exercise costs nothing. You can do 20 in a day if you want to. Um, but coming up with these is the real minimum viable product that people should be trying before they go throw up a landing page, all that type of stuff. Write it down on a single piece of paper. Write two or three sentences that really talk about the, the outcome of what your product delivers when it works as, as expected. I mean, the, the equivalent I give to everyone, if you're selling a six-pack workout, the default entrepreneur response um, is, well, it's three to six exercises, and we created this pulley system. It's like, no, 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 no. People are buying the six-pack. They don't care about your pulley system. Um, when you go through and you write these pitches, if you write and sell the six pack and then sell basically just the proof point of here's how I actually get you the six pack, 
Number one, I can take and I can reposition the same product 10 different ways. And even sometimes if it's not quite amazing, I can figure out how to make it amazing just by doing those. It's super cheap. It's super fast. Um, and by running a handful of people through that and putting those little pieces of paper in front of a handful of the consumers that are expected to buy this thing, I can learn so much about that product in so little time that you can literally become an expert in honestly like a matter of two days. You can really figure out what matters, what do we really need to build towards, and uh, for almost nothing. It's, it's one of those things that I can't believe more people don't know about it. They touch on it. Um, but man, uh, that is one of those keys to figuring out both what do we have, is it interesting, and then on top of that, uh, how can we make it more interesting, and what should we be building towards, because this is the type of stuff on concept number 13, where we really talk about bulging abs, where, where the consumers really seem to respond. We need to figure out how to make the bulge happen more from those abs and that six-pack. Focus more on talking about that bulge. And it works. And it works on everything I've ever used and every product I've ever pitched. And it didn't matter what industry, sector, apps, whatever. Everything. It always works. It's always the same. That one. I wish that one was out there more. You know, uh, I, I'm always jealous of the time that you got to do working with IDEO. You know, I, I took one of the classes. I was at the 99U conference, and I got to go spend a half day at their oh, New York cool. office. And it's, it's an awesome place, right? It's funny. You, you talk about this concepting thing, and, like, I think had somebody described it to me before I'd been through the class, I'd mm -hmm. have been like, yeah, 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 good idea. Mm -hmm. You know, like brainstorm, maybe talk, maybe somebody put some post-it notes. Yeah. But I go to the I go to the IDO's office and they're like, they got these like big piece of like styrofoam and they've like cut the shape of an iPhone out. And they've oh, got yeah. they've got a person standing oh, yeah. behind what the iPhone screen is and they're like, Okay, then you push this button and they've got a person standing in front pretending to push this giant iPhone button. And they've got their own staff member standing behind the cardboard <laughs> cutout going like doing the actions of what the person on the app will do like it was like so wildly basic yeah but uh but so tangible very much too, so. that it like it gave everyone an emotional reaction to oh that's awesome or that sucks yeah and like um I don't know, like you think of these people that invented the mouse for computers or they're you know they're making all these great apple products you don't think like you know, elementary school arts and crafts time. Oh, but they like <laughs> the number one tool in their like I used to go out to their Palo Alto office all the time. The number one office, the number one tool across maybe two post-it notes and Sharpie markers are everywhere. It's in tape. Add tape to that. I mean, literally, I've seen pictures of them inventing surgical tools by taping dry erase markers together to try to figure out the ergonomics of how this motor needed to be mounted on surgical tools. Um, it's cheap, it's easy, and it's incredibly rudimentary. The tactile experience, I mean, it's one of these things that you find out on apps. Uh, almost no one really sticks by it, but the best coding is done last. Um, it's one of these things where the best design is done really, really rudimentary, on a really, really rudimentary scale. It doesn't require a ton of money or even a ton of people in most cases. Um, and you can, you can work wonders with post-it notes. It's, it's pretty phenomenal. I mean, you I mean, I wish it was sexier. You go, yeah, maybe they've got 3D goggles and pressure sensitive gloves and they can build this. It's like, no, it's going to be post-it notes and Sharpie markers. Yeah, they're making like, they're making like cardboard puppets to act stuff out. They're making like, um, they're just like, instead of building an app, yeah. they're like, they're making fake screenshots mm -hmm. in Photoshop or something and like having somebody push a button and someone else manually, <laughs> manually yeah. switches it out. And then it would come to this screen if you'd push that button. And it's like, instead of doing three weeks to build something out, it's like, three minutes later or 30 minutes, sorry, 30 minutes later, or three hours later, oh, yeah, they've same, got yeah. like, 
<laughs> they've got like the arts and craft version. And again, I think that I really like it was a mental shift that just talking about it wouldn't have been for me of like, they're so into tangible. Like yeah. touch it. Like yeah. tangible. Like <laughs> it really tangible. Play. The other one too is uh get your actual target consumers in the room. Because I mean, I don't know if, if you guys have this, but if you're building um, you know, product with ConAgra, they bring in the target consumer, both the really the hardcore people that are already completely complete mm-hmm, completely into the uh the idea and the people that they're actually hoping to kind of bring under the tent. You know, like if you're growing, there's only so many people that you can and so much kind of if you want to call it penetration rates where you can get people to consume more of the same product. Eventually you have to start getting outside the tent. And sometimes that means making the people inside the tent a little bit angry or whatever. Sometimes you have to go and reposition. Like luxury car companies always get yelled at, like Lexus, um, what's the the IS? They came out with the IS to try to bring in the younger crowd. The older crowd got mad, right? This type of this type of move. Um, bringing those consumers in and honestly, this is the other thing. People assume that you need hundreds upon hundreds of points of feedback and stuff like that on um, 12. If you can get six really hardcore customers and then six people that you would like to attract, you can learn so much from a group that small in literally a day. Just like, well, which one of these really works for you. And that's one of the ways that you can start designing products that don't work just for you. I mean, there's a huge flaw that a lot of entrepreneurs have where they can't see it outside of their own little blinders. Um, and they need help for understanding that, hey, not everyone sees it the same way you do. You need to start jumping into someone else's shoes and it needs to matter for them. But see, this is not like a revolutionary idea. No. Right? People talk a good game about this all the time. Yeah. What I'm fascinated is that they actually do it. You know, yeah. I got to... Oh, yeah. I got to take a follow-up class at uh, an entrepreneurship class at Stanford last year. You know, uh-huh. go out for a couple of days, a quarter, whatever. Uh-huh. And we got to take the Stanford D School class as part of this entrepreneur um, thing. And uh, again, founded by those Tom Kelly and the guys from IDEO, mm-hmm. right? And it was just kind of an expanded version of the class I'd taken in New York. And I mean, this show, this podcast, ideationcollective.com, is actually partially an outgrowth of that. They're, nice. This idea of radical collaboration where yeah. they're saying like you are not going to come up with something that your peers haven't thought of by sitting around the table and drinking the Kool-Aid yes. like <laughs> get people from the most diverse set of backgrounds you can mm-hmm. and get their thoughts on it that's how you're going to break the group think Definitely. and it's literally like between that and Stephen Johnson's book where good ideas come from that was mm-hmm. like that was the whole impetus of this show starting yeah. and uh, of course Austin Cleon's book steal like an artist but if you go to the about page on ideationcollective.com you actually yeah. see these things that we're talking about so anyways it very works. jealous that you actually got to work with them um, it was fun it was very fun and with a budget and but, it was very fun to know that you can do that with literally anybody anytime anywhere yeah I mean the the thing that makes the IDEO guys good I don't know if they call it this, but it's T-based skill sets. They're all an expert in one thing deep. Like there's a, a mechanical engineer over here, there's a sculptor or a graphic designer over here, and then they have a really thin layer of kind of generalist skill sets on top of that. So they can go deep on one subject, but on top of that, they can do a little bit of what they need to. They got their hands in enough cookie jars. Um, when you think about that, that describes most of the people you know, right? Um, these people are around and it'd be great to do the IDO and have like the six figure and then seven figure contracts where they get to go do this stuff all day, every day. Um, but you can do that with your team right now type of thing. It's available. We can go pull people from outside this office and actually get some pretty decent feedback and literally do it in an hour. 
That's awesome. Yeah. Well, um, thinking about um, innovation and iteration and yeah. and uh, like really, I think entrepreneurs, inventors, innovators, you know, listen to the show. Um, it's pretty easy for us to come up with something that we're we're pretty sure is a good idea. Sure. Right. <laughs> you know, and we think our first draft is awesome. Uh-huh. Right. Um, any anybody in your life that you feel like approached that iteration concept with humility, like that set the example for you of SARS, like not believing their own hype of like always willing to question, always willing to take more information to um, that that uh, wasn't just a my way is so genius. Lucky all you guys got to be here and learn yeah, about it. Yeah, actually. Um, I had the luxury, absolute luxury, of doing, getting to do a little bit of work with a guy named Chip Conley. If you ever read Peak, um, this 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 guy's That's a book? Yeah, 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 it's one of the best Okay, we'll, we'll put it. If you're listening to this on your commute or, or working out at the gym, we'll put this on Dan's page on ideationcollective.com. We'll put the link to this book. Okay. Sure. Um, so Chip Conley's super smart guy. This guy has, he's been a TED Talk speaker multiple times kind of thing. Um, and his, he was the uh, founder of the Joie de Vivre hotel chain in, in uh, San Francisco. He sold that later. He's currently the chief culture officer at Airbnb. And uh, this guy's smart. Um, this guy has nailed kind of a, a combination of, of how to run and do culture and business management and getting the best out of your employees uh, better than anyone else I've ever heard. And he was almost, insp- it was weird, but... Imagine the Dalai Lama did business. That's what it's like to work with Chip. It's really one of these things where you're almost inspired just to get the luxury to work with him. And his management style is actually very cool because it's basically just empowering. It's, what do you think we should do? Go for it. He gave, like, all of the stuff that I had come to with that relationship, a bunch of baggage in terms of, well, we need to figure out how we're going to align X, Y, and Z type of stuff. He just went, well, let's figure it out later. Let's just see if we can build a product. What do you think we should do? And it was really just, I'm clearly the expert in the room, meaning Chip. Chip is way smarter than I will ever be. And uh, the first thing he basically did was said, what do you think? I mean, it was phenomenal. And uh, man, does your brain start working really, really hard when a really smart person says, I need to hear your thoughts first. Um, and the, the relationship kind of continued that way. Um, and, uh, one of the things that I I've learned from that, and it, it still even spins a lot of people just because I, I often now do it without realizing it. Um, if you can get a team culture working around a product where there is an objective, we don't care where the idea comes from. We just want to make sure that the right idea ends up under this roof as quickly as possible. Um, it really starts some really cool things. I mean, the, the, the eating your own dog food, quote unquote. Uh, concept in business of, you know, can we actually really find out when you extract ego from the equation, your progress will be doubled, tripled and quadrupled. Um, if you can get a team that doesn't care who made it, that doesn't necessarily care who uh, the, you know, which employee came up with which idea, uh, just that we make something that collectively and even more importantly, those consumers that we have right outside our office door, I want something that they really get excited about. Uh, Man, does it get fun to work on projects that have that type of culture. Um, Chip Conley's probably the, the best I've, I've seen at that type of stuff. I mean, really, really impressive stuff. We can go into it deeper if you want to talk about the book stuff, but it's, it's, it's a really cool kind of method of just getting people 
past focusing on kind of their own problems and um, more into, well, how do we just make something that really lasts? How do we make a legacy out of this this business project or culture? So Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, obviously having something awesome is not enough. We have to figure out how to attract people to want to buy it from us also or (laughs) donate to it or whatever, right? Yes. So um, thinking about this idea of of becoming magnetic enough that people actually want to come to us, uh, telling the stories enough that people make that emotional decision to part with the dollars and (laughs) logically justify it later, right? Yeah. Um, Crowdfunding is something people are very interested in these days. I mean, everybody from little products to to the folks from the former Wall Streeters we were with last week, right? Yes. Um, When you think about the wins that people are having in crowdfunding Uh specifically, as Uh far as let's take it for granted that they've got something awesome, which shouldn't be taken for granted. But if if that check mark had been checked, um, what do you feel like are are the what's the first mistake that most people make when looking at crowdfunding? Build it and they will come. I mean, really, the one of the main things that we get paid to do is establish the relationship in the first place. Um, I would love and everyone would love, and it's probably, yeah, the biggest mistake there, but it's assuming that just because you have something that people will know what it is, come to it, buy it, whatever, uh, people get surprised all the time when they say basically, hey, we're going to launch next week. Uh, can you get us the five million bucks we need in the next month? Um, in many cases, well, tell me what you've already got built. You know, what have you already done? And if the answer is no, um, in some cases, you know, we can we can say, okay, here's what we would do in that situation. But oftentimes, I will tell those people straight up: uh, anyone that tells you that they can do this probably just stole your wallet. So run. <laughs> yeah. The uh, the biggest mistake in crowdfunding is having that relationship in the first place, and that requires both talking and listening. Now, you're saying the relationship with the potential buyer, the, the potential crowd. contributor, the crowd. With okay. the crowd. Um, it's about getting in uh, front of them. It's about proving that you're both listening and able to talk. I mean, having something cool makes it a lot easier because it's really easy to talk about cool stuff. Um, people want to be involved on really interesting stuff. That's that's not a problem. Uh you need to talk about stuff that's cool to them, not you. Uh, those are almost always diametrically opposed. So you have to b- actually do a little bit of the, the testing. I mean, there's actually kind of a scientific method to it where you start figuring out based on keyword volumes and other things what's interesting. Sometimes that doesn't give you enough data and you have to start putting different ideas in front of those kind of audiences and figure out what people react to. Um, but the biggest trick, it's going those places where that crowd hangs out, figuring out where the core customers is. So like, for example, Reddit is a really good place to find where those core, hardcore tip of the uh, tip of the, the spear type of individuals are because they're really tech savvy. They love seeing the newest, coolest stuff you can find. I think there's something like one or 200,000 subreddits on Reddit right now. Um, so those message boards where people are just talking about your product is available. It exists. Uh, Those people are willing to give you feedback, talk about your stuff, create a conversation, uh, do all the trolly things that the Internet is going to do. Um, But uh, it's it's where you can start to have that conversation of, well, what do you guys think? I see a ton of people that are doing actually product testing via Reddit. Um, But then there's all the Facebook groups. There's LinkedIn groups. There's a ton of different forums online where you can actually start to build that audience before you go. 
and uh, same kind of thing. It matters where they are. Social gets a lot of play. It's really interesting. Um, I would way rather have a huge email list than a social media following. Um, social media helps, but I'd rather have an email list, quite frankly. So let, let's talk about this. Let's talk about um, somebody, maybe somebody who's listening, who's thinking about a crowdfunding campaign. Uh-huh. Um, if they will swallow the pill that there probably needs to be a lot more preparation up front than they had maybe originally thought. Swallow that pill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let, let's talk about some of the things on the list of a properly prepared for campaign. Mm-hmm. The, the press kits, the media outreach, the yeah. ideas for guest blogging or or pre-emails to people. What, what are, what's some of the hit lists? If if I'm a new company, I come to come to your company, I come to crack the crowd, and I'm saying, let's say, you know, I, I know that you guys will help people build an entire crowdfunding platform, but let's say I'm just doing a campaign. Sure. What, what's some of the hit lists right off the bat to start preparing so that when we do launch, it's going to go well? Yeah, the very first thing we do is actually, this is, I, I've, eh? here you go, Tim Brown. I have, Tim, uh, at IDEO, uh, I have modeled a ton of the work that we do at Crack the Crowd, kind of off IDEO's, which they're cool with, open innovation strategy. Um, this is basically just the five-step process, pro- process um, go and take inventory of what you have, figure out the limitations and the resources that you have, come up with ideas, rapidly prototype as much as you possibly can. Next step, make decisions. Um, go through, figure out what matters, launch, soft launch that product, get a little bit of feedback, and then start iterating and getting iterative feedback and developing from there. Um, we go through in the very first days, we take inventory of everything. What do you have? What's the status of the product? What's the shipping? What uh, if you have an email list, how many people are on it? How much uh, information and details do we have? Do we have phone numbers type stuff? Um, Facebook followers and all those different social media accounts, how many followers on each and if they've been actually talked to in the first place and whether or not they're real, like you, you can buy a Twitter following and things like that. Um, there's a ton of people that actually have pretty small followings. They're actually really powerful people just because the people that actually listen to them are pretty important. Um, we'll go through and we'll take inventory of all of those things to figure out what is ready to go and what isn't. And most of the time, it's not. Uh, most of the time, that means that, we, means that we need to go do some messaging strategy, some rebranding, um, or build some marketing campaigns, PPC or something like that. Um, start there. Make sure your ducks in a row that you can deliver what you have. You know your product inside and out. I mean, really, crowdfunding is basically digitizing a word-of-mouth marketing strategy. Word of mouth, if you want another book suggestion, Andy Cernovitz, Word of Mouth Marketing by Gas Pedal. Um, those guys are pretty cool. And uh, there's basically three main things that go into word of mouth marketing. It's have something that's got an emotional tie-in that means it's worth talking about in the first place. Um, it's uh, make a message that's memorable and give them the tools to share, which means have something cool in the first place. Make it easy to repeat the message, share the message, whatever. This is why oftentimes those really short, annoying McDonald's, I'm loving it, and a lot of the things that people find really annoying but realize that they know by heart work. And then uh, three is tools to share, meaning we're going to enable the distribution on its own of that next campaign. We'll pre-write the tweet. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll go through, we'll build hashtags for the campaign so people can find it showing up on other channels, uh, that type of stuff. Um, make sure you've got that stuff built into the product. Then we go through, we do all the marketing channels and uh, check on them, make sure that they actually exist. And then uh, from there, we start building campaigns on where we're weakest before we launch. Um, have a good product, have a conversation running is basically that in a distilled form. 
Well, um, you know, I feel like we've been in like crowdfunding boot camp as you guys have been so generous <laughs> to donate for the for child rescue and getting all our social, making sure that the branding's consistent and all these different things. Um, do you want to talk about something I think a lot of people don't know about, about this 30% hurdle and the idea of pre-sales versus sure. having 100% of it come from the crowd? Sure. Um, this is – so uh, Jess is referring to the um – there is a social validation. There's a, there's another book I can't even remember who wrote it, but it's called Crossing the Chasm. Uh, but this, okay, good. There we go. Uh, this this premise and idea of what makes some products go huge and what makes other products that are even great products just fall flat. And the the chasm is this this little space um, on a I mean imagine a bell curve. It's broken into I think four sections. And uh, at the very front, there's the innovators, there's the inventors, there's the tinkerers. It's a very, very small group. These individuals are actively building and, and creating the, the widget themselves. They're usually not buying stuff because it's not really out there. Uh, that next group are the influencers, bloggers, press. These are people that are watching the tinkerers. They know who the experts are, uh, but uh, their, their real trick, their, 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 their uh, resource is that they have a larger audience. They're oftentimes too busy to actually build stuff themselves, so they curate. And uh, the next group are the early adopters. These are the people that are willing to stand in lines for iPhones and things like that. They'll put up with stuff that's a little bit buggy. Um, they're willing to kind of put up with that type of stuff because they want to be the cool kid, the first, the whatever. They like and, and like that, that kind of uh, experience. And then after that, that's where discounts start coming in. This is where people start waiting till everything is totally cleared up and it's flawless and... Uh, we, it's on sale, you know, the, the later adopters and then laggards, that's where your grandma and everyone else shows up. Um, the, uh, organizing that, that launch is using each of those groups to seed the next and force a larger kind of viral, if you want to call it that, uh, but a larger campaign. Uh, first and foremost, we start with whoever the campaign holds closest partners, as we refer to them. Uh, friends, families, vendors, people that have already bought from you, people that have a really tight relationship for the product. Um, we engage them and we start asking them, like, I know you're going to contribute anyways because you love this, but I need some more. I need you to help me get feedback on our message. And then on top of that, uh, I want you to share, tweet, and uh, even donate to the campaign. And oftentimes it's such a small group that it's worth making a phone call to those people. Um, it's extremely important that they get on board. The reason being is because that next group is those influencers and bloggers and journalists, and what they're looking for is a story that's worth talking about and the knowledge that they're first up to uh, exclusively, quote-unquote, break that, that product. Um, the people that they look for for social validation on this actually being a cool product are your partners, the tinkerers, the people that are that close to the project in the first place. If they're not getting behind it, it's going to be pretty hard to get the press and the journalists and the influencers to. Press and the influencers, once you've got them, you've given them the press kit, you've given them all of the press, the hashtags, you've pre-written 90% of the article on their behalf just because now all you guys have to do, I mean, why wouldn't you post an article if it only took you 10 minutes? Like, yeah, pretend that you worked all afternoon in your coffee shop and all you needed to do was repost half the stuff that we provided for you. They have the ear of the audience that is the early adopters that are willing to put up with the crowdfunding flaws. These are, I mean... Right now, I am one of those unfortunate backers that's waiting on their coolest cooler uh, from, you know, what, are we coming up on a total of two years now? Um, but it's what I signed up for, and I'm okay with it. 
those bloggers, journalists, those Scobles, you know, Robert Scoble, those are the guys that actually introduced us to that product, and we're willing to put up with that. Um, they're going to put it into my hands. And that first 20% is essentially what I collect from the partners to get the press on board. So it's like, hey, this thing is already going to work. You want to just make sure that you don't miss the boat. And then the journalists use that to press it, push it out to the rest of the population, which is where the virality, if you will, takes place. And that's what helps you coast through the remainder of the campaign. Most of the data suggests that if you can hit that first 20% in your first week, you'll probably fulfill your full campaign. So that's yeah, so great. See, see it. Well, um, you know, obviously not all crowdfunding platforms are created equal. No. Um, do you want to talk about your friend at, at Indiegogo and and how, <laughs> yeah. how it's the idea of actually partnering with them and doing our campaign in a way that lets them help us and sure. and why it's why actually reaching out. Go, go ahead. And they will. I mean, in this context, so like uh, different platforms work for different people and a lot of people assume that. You know, if I get on Kickstarter, it's automatically going to fund itself. This is one of those kind of build it and they will come type of ideas. And the reality is, is no. Platforms, in most cases, don't do your marketing for you at all in many cases. In many cases, I've had clients that created platforms just because they were so mad about how little work and, and feedback and help that they got from the platforms. Um, and uh, for that reason, I mean, a, Kickstarter gets a lot of flack because... And frankly, just the customer service can in, in many ways be non-existent. They don't really help with a ton of data. And Indiegogo does. I like Indiegogo. Um, Indiegogo, they're dangerous. They're they're like they're revolutionary anarchists that really just want innovation. And it's a very very cool kind of idea. Um, but they're really smart. They're really data driven. And uh, if you can show them a campaign that's really interesting that has all the fundamentals built, they can help promote. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's one right now that, that Child Rescue may be a uh, part of, fingers crossed, that it'll get through. It's in final selection, just so you know. Um, that uh, if they see a campaign that has the 20% the bump um, and it's got the press releases and the media kit and it's got the team and it's got all these things lined up, they can actually help and will throw the support of their own marketing team behind it um, to actually introduce the crowd to you. The hurdle there is, again, though, still you have to do so much of their work on their behalf uh, that uh, you make it as easy. But, again, it's those tools to share. If they've got them all set up, they will. Um, and uh, there's a very cool manager of social innovation at Indiegogo named Elisa Cordesius that's really smart and has been incredibly kind to kind of reach out. Uh, she she believes in the idea that Child Rescue has and uh, introduced us to some of their larger marketing partners. And uh, fingers crossed, I don't know if we'll know today or maybe in the near future, but if we, we clear that hurdle, they start promoting us for Giving Tuesday. Last year, man, what did they raise? Something 45,000 campaigns raised many millions of dollars on Giving Tuesday, biggest giving day of the year. I think Child Rescue is a great candidate and should be one of the projects at the forefront of that. I really don't know if there's a better cause I mean, it's. If, does everyone on this podcast know about Child Rescue? I, I don't know, but I'm all about the free promotion. <laughs> Let me, okay, let's do this. So, um, it, it, you're right. Indiegogo has been great for us. I mean, whether we get picked up for Giving Tuesday or not, they've been great to us. Sure. Um, when you think about Crack the Crowd, I know that you have all sorts of people come to you and say, oh, I've got this great idea. I don't have any money to pay for help, but Dan, could you do this for me? Uh, okay. Yeah. Whereas you actually, you know, I was approaching you on the investment platform idea and you you straight up volunteered to sure. help us with this. What was it about Child Rescue and, and uh, what was it that Crack the Crowd decided this was going to be how you guys give back? Sure. I mean, we literally almost daily get hit up for that type of thing. I mean... 
it's kind of the the sad reality that there's a lot of reason that a lot of people don't have money, right? Um, the people like you can make your own luck. There's a way over and around. But if you have a really good product and you're organized and you have your your shit straight, quite frankly, you can get money. Money's not that hard to find, especially right now. Um, child rescue was one of, like I like. I will even say it was. I used to be a kindergarten teacher. I took a, a little six-month stint off of uh, my college education to go teach kindergarten English in China um, because after sitting around and really thinking, all right, I want a break, and I really care about what I'm going to uh, be doing with the rest of my life, and I know that I need to do something to give back because I've been crazy fortunate in my life, there's got to be a muse that sticks with me, and I'm a big believer, and you have to do something that you genuinely care about. It's very hard to... I mean, all of the stuff from <clears throat> Love Sack and Crack the Crowd has worked because it's stuff I would almost be doing anyways. I, like if I'm, I go and work on my clients' work during the day and then after hours, Child Rescue and other clients and friends and stuff pops up and I'm still doing it towards 9 p.m. at night. Um, found out my dad has pretty much the exact same problem, but the, it's, it's just part of it. You do something you love. I thought mine was education. Um, I really, I mean, it's really... Annoying for me when people have the opportunity to access education and they turn it down. Um, it's really sad for me. When I learned about child rescue, it put a ton of stuff into uh, perspective because you start realizing, like, so we figured out the average mission costs 1800 bucks, and these kids are basically per, going, per kid. Per kid, sure, per kid, sorry. <laughs> That's a good caveat. Um, but about uh, $1,800 per kid, and not only are those kids not necessarily getting great education, um, but they're being they're having education withheld from them. If you're the perp, uh, you don't want them to have skills that would make it easier for them to get out of this life, uh, which is potentially for me one of the saddest things beyond the fact that these these people are literally getting tortured on a daily basis and and that type of stuff. I mean, it was it's overwhelmingly crazy that people go through this type of stuff on a daily basis. I mean, what did we figure the average? Oh, they're they're heartbreaking statistics. But just the average kid is 13 years old. They're they're being forced to have sex with something like 12 partners on average per day, and it's seven days a week. And if you start to imagine what that would do to a human after several years of that, I mean, it's it's phenomenal that they even live through it. And there's many stories where you hear that they actually try to commit suicide just to get out of it. I mean, even compared to hey, I want to teach kids to read you start getting that put into perspective where you go, okay, so maybe there are some people that deserve a little bit more attention than just let's take care of this first. We'll get to reading and literature next. <laughs> but for now, let's just make sure they're not getting tortured and raped daily. Sure. And, you know, I'll say for us, you know, I remember six years ago when we were getting going, um, you know, it's interesting how people are motivated differently you know mm -hmm. there's a few people that and i'm kind of like you like hearing the statistics was motivating the, the, the kind of the horror stories of like kind of like i don't know i'm a dad and like the inner protector in me is like we got to do something about this sure. right um and i thought it was interesting that you guys keyed into something that took us six months to key into when when you had stephanie do the video for the indiegogo campaign and talk about her mom and talk about mm -hmm. because my wife's mom was a survivor and went on to have the American dream and raise a dentist and raise a business owner and <laughs> and um, talk about the success stories. I mean, it took us six months to figure out that when we told horror stories, people said like, oh, that's terrible. When we told success stories, they said, oh, that's that's terrible that that happened, but I want to help things get better. Yeah. <laughs> and so making this video about success stories sure. would tap into that larger percent of the population that will 
emotionally motivate them to want to yeah. not just, you know, feel curl up in the fetal position. Yeah. Um, it's a hard one in that sense. And, you know, maybe you can touch on this idea, too, of I know this is something we talked about earlier on when you, when Crack the Crowd was volunteering. Um, credibility, like doing the preparation have credibility. I mean, uh-huh. you look at, you know, the different individuals from the intelligence community or the special operations community mm-hmm. that, that have supported us. And you've got the chance to come hang out with a uh, former Delta Force operator, That's Tom cool. Bigley, really from our cool. board. Um, and, and your emphasis that you felt like that was part of the raw materials that we had. And maybe any advice you'd have for anybody listening of far as, you know, uh, whether it's attaching partner brands or p- people, you know, to bring the credibility. Yeah. Um, oftentimes, like if you were to organize the, 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 remember the ad pitch we were talking about? Um, if I was to o- go through and organize that, I actually have like a little blueprint thing that I follow, but title, subtitle, photo, you know, can be the background. Um, descriptive paragraph, which talks about the six pack and the bulging abs. And then at the bottom, it's the proof points. And that better be where the statistics come in, um, where the bios and the people that are backing the team. It's oftentimes uh, where the logos of partner vendors or even just where we've been featured comes in. Um, but the, the real trick in organizing how to pitch a product really well is sell them on the outcome and the, the six pack first, but then make sure that you can prove that you can deliver on it. And uh, bringing to the table either, you know, here's how many kids we've saved. Here are the people on the team. Here are the other organizations that have backed and vetted us. Here's the partner companies that have sponsored missions. Being on Glenn Beck. Being, being on, on, yeah, Glenn Beck. All those type of things. Kitty Kirk. Um, it, it helps you buy attention. I mean, right? And right now there is literally nothing that is more fleeting than a human's attention on an internet uh, screen where literally they can switch to anything they want in literally a fractions of a second. Uh, so you have to make sure that you've bought and gone through that pr- that process extremely quickly, like less than 20 seconds for the whole t- entire original pitch. They should know everything they need to know in those 20 seconds. And then after that, that's where they can start going and diving in deeper. Uh, but it, they all have to be there. Do they want the outcome? Have you proven that you recognize who they are and what they're looking for? And then finally, can you prove that you can deliver it now's the pulley systems everything else x percent statistics but also who else has already vetted us and uh given us the green light sure yeah well um before we move off crowdfunding here i mean in addition to obviously calling you and hiring crack the crowd Mm -hmm. um any any other closing advice of just if you you know final piece of advice for anybody who who's getting ready to do a crowdfunding campaign of any kind just yeah, um, there is a ton of press. So we mentioned the coolest cooler right now, and I don't know if you know this, but coolest cooler started putting the coolest up on Amazon. Um, so I backed the campaign eight, ten, whatever, twelve. I can't remember how many months ago it was. I paid one hundred and eighty something bucks for a cooler because I was one of the earlier birds, and uh, they are now in trouble. They've overfunded. They've been successful. They raised their many millions of dollars. But to keep the lights on at their company and to fund their ongoing operations, uh, they are now selling coolest coolers on Amazon at 500 bucks. Now that means that if I was to go to Amazon today, I could buy a cooler and get it shipped to my house quicker than I as a backer who paid for it nearly two years ago would have. Um, For that reason, there's a ton of backlash against the company. And in many cases, you hear a ton, I hear it all the time about how full of fraud crowdfunding is, and it's actually not true. Um, what is, what crowdfunding is full of is unprepared ignorance, people that are in over their head, not just be, not managing and setting the expectations. 
Um, doing your homework up front prevents a ton of these problems. And if you go look, I mean, literally when, when a crowdfunding campaign um, is prosecuted for fraud, it is like global news. And if you go look through the U.S., I think there's two cases where they've actually hit that level. And uh, even in those cases, I would actually, like one of them was for a game, I would call it gross negligence. Like the guy was, I really think he just realized he wasn't going to be able to deliver it. And he started buying a BMW instead. I don't think it was a fraud. It's actually extremely hard to defraud people in crowdfunding because it's based off word of mouth marketing. And no one is going to back your product if they know you're lying because why would they? You're just, I'm going to burn my reputation so you can get rich? I don't think so. What usually happens, and definitely people try, they just really usually don't get far. Half the time they get pulled down before anything goes wrong. Um, do your homework <laughs> is the larger thing I'm telling you here. Um, there are P&Ls uh, that can help you understand, do I really understand the economics of my product um, if I overfund, am I ready to deal with the logistics of potentially having to go to China versus maybe a domestic supplier for the parts I need, which will potentially extend and delay my product another three months? I mean, if you go look at the top crowdfunding campaigns, they deliver on average eight months late. Eight months. Um, the good news is, is most people fail, and then the other ones that uh, do well do well. There's a ton of them that overfund, and then they burn the bridge with a ton of people that really could have been their best brand ambassadors. Uh, do your homework and don't just throw up a campaign and uh, think twice before taking money just because it's on the table in front of you. Great. Well, besides having something awesome and figuring out how to attract people to want it from you, um, both of which, you know, these innovation or iteration systems, these marketing sales systems, you need typically humans to run them, yeah. or at least part of them, right? Yep. So uh, let's talk about the, the teeter-totter of being an entrepreneur, where most of us either need a little more confidence or a little more humility little at, any given, humility. at any given point. Yeah. Um, let's, start, <laughs> let's, start on the, uh, let's start on the confidence side this time. Um, so we've all had times of anxiety. Uh, any, any tricks from Dan on times where maybe you're walking into a room or you're going somewhere and you realize you need a bit more confidence, things you tell yourself or something that comes up to help help you realize that you've got this? Man, I uh, definitely will disclose that I am on the side of this teeter-totter that needs less, uh, a little more a little more humility, not confidence. Um, I think confidence is really important. The, I mean, the one thing that I've, and one of the reasons I think I have the confidence side of the equation down is that I've been able to meet some of the heroes and that type of stuff, and uh, I'm pleasantly unimpressed. <laughs> the, Do you mean you recognize their humanity? Exactly. They're just like one of us. Um, they are just like one of us. They put their pants on one leg at a time. They screw up. They misspell. I mean, I've, I've had the pleasure of working with people that I just absolutely idolized as the smartest men on the planet um, and women. Uh, and uh, later found out like, oh, yeah, he doesn't know when the proper use of there is. And I know I do this, too. I'm a terrible writer. But um, where you start to see these little flaws in their character, which really very, very graciously and for me, fantastically, just let you know that Steve Jobs was just another guy. He was a good guy. He was a smart guy. He was really good at what he did. The real trick of Steve Jobs was he was a totally standard guy that really got into a product and a process that he absolutely loved and was completely infatuated with, which for me says that anyone can be Steve Jobs if they get on the right product that they really give a shit about and really focus on. Um, 
when I go into those situations where I'm being surrounded by people who have thrown out a handful of big, even then this week, you know, where they start throwing out really big numbers, most of the time I really just sit back and start going, you're just another guy. I, it's one of those where that reminder for me makes it much easier to have those conversations. Um, well, let's do the other side of the teeter totter then. All right. Okay. <laughs> at, at the times that maybe, uh, at the times that maybe you've bre- believed your own press clippings or gotten too big for your britches, or the, <laughs> the times when you realize like you're showing up with, you know, this is my classic one of, I'm the guy with the idea. Lucky, lucky for all of you, I'm here. <laughs> but okay, right. So let, let's talk about times when the teeter totters going the wrong way. Uh, yeah. What are things that that uh, help you see your blind spots or put yourself in check? Uh, reminders of how many times that's gotten me in trouble. That is my, uh, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I've had like, I've, I've been lucky enough that I've had, like, if you go through several businesses, you're going to have, every business partnership breaks up every one. Like the real way you want to think about this partnership is how do we end this on a good note before we start type of thing. And if you can't envision your partner being in your life for life, literally like a marriage with a kid involved, that's, that's the equivalent of a business partnership. You shouldn't be doing it. Um, and I've had a, I've had a bunch of them, and uh, I'm pretty sure almost everyone. I'm trying to think if there's anyone that wouldn't work with me again, because I know I'm not an easy guy to work with, because I am. I get passionate about this work because I love it, and uh, that in many cases has led to those arguments that hasn't necessarily broken up the relationship, but it may have been the. Well, you know what's easier is if I go manage this division and you go manage that division. Um, and, uh, a lot of the times I go, Oh, it would have worked better if I would have been less hard nosed about it. I, it's one of those things that's just come with my, my work style and everything else. I mean, I think I've in many, I feel like I have cut my nose off despite my face in a few occasions, just in the learning process. And I think at this point it's made me more humble than I've been in the past and I'm more cognizant of it. Um, like at the very least, I recognize it in this conversation. <laughs> um, but I have a bunch where people just went, "Yeah, you're." I've had a bunch of people say, "You're brilliant, but you're you're hard to work with because you're too engaged in it." You know, it's stuff. They're going home and they 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 have a life after work, mm. and I do too. But I yeah. love this stuff. No, so, no, yeah, I, um, I I can relate to that. This idea. I remember when I was running the investment fund. Mm-hmm you know, realizing like, why did I have these staff that I loved and these other staff that I discounted, mm-hmm. you know? And it was because for me, I had this thing of like anybody who wasn't operating at my intensity level, all of a sudden wasn't doing, didn't matter or, as much yeah. or something, uh-huh. you know? And, um, just pretty lot of lack of empathy on my part. Um, let's go for another one. Uh, you're a married guy. I am. It's the married guy club today. Uh-huh. So, um, uh, being being a hard charger kind of guy, exciting yeah. guy, social guy. Uh-huh. Um, has there ever been a time <laughs> when your wife has been sad that you work more than spend time with her? <laughs> you mean I'm just ever? Gonna go on, I'm just going to go on a limb. I'm just gonna, has that ever happened at your you house? Ever or this week? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the good news is my I have the coolest wife on the planet, and I'm very lucky to... Like, I mean, I've had people tell me this where they were just like uh, business school. I had a, a buddy that was talking about a, uh, re, he was rethinking his engagement 
because he didn't have as good a relationship as I do with my wife and like just other people seeing it. It's just, she's incredibly easy to get along with. And she absolutely puts up with me. Like I'm an eccentric, like for, you know, many reasons. I think what makes us strange is one of those things that makes us interesting. And, um, I go out on a limb to actually indulge my eccentricities. And so that woman walks into a lot of rooms that look like a bomb has gone off because I'm trying to figure or work something or whatever. I mean, literally this weekend, she's really just been like, really, Dan? Like, I'm walking around with a headlamp at one in the morning this week. Um, so good news is she's incredibly tolerant of it. We're adopting right now and we're about to have a kid, and I bet you that it's probably going to change a bit after that kid shows up. Um, but, you mean uh, you, can, you have to stop being the kid? Is that what you're trying to get yeah, at? Yeah, I don't know how that's going to work. I'm not going to be uh, used to it. Um, but thus far, finding the right spouse was the easier solution. Uh, just It's one of those things, man. It's, it's like I have ADHD, which is way more of an asset than people let on. It's if I get into the right thing, I've got laser focus for 12 hours. Like, try to compete with that, right? Um, and if you go read all those, like, Malcolm Gladwell and stuff where they talk about the master's 10,000 hours, one of the easiest ways to do it is to do it longer than just work hours, right? If I can, like, a great example is my dad. This guy's brilliant. He works with his hands, and he owns an, a foundry. They make ornamental iron, statues, really fancy stuff, really, really cool stuff. To relax, he builds cars, motorcycles. He basically just builds different metal. Um, when you think about how to get to a master, if that's your idea of, well, I'm going to go work on it for eight hours, but I'm going to go relax on it for another four to, 12, four to eight hours, um, you can start getting good at something really, really quick in comparison to other people that are clocking in at nine to five. And uh, for that reason, finding the muse, that, that thing that really gets your, gets your goat going, Super important. Finding a spouse that's willing to put up with it or a healthy way yeah. uh, to indulge it is good. But she so, definitely reminds me yeah, regularly so, we need a date night kind of thing. Okay. Um, what about this? What about um, how many year, how many years you've been married? Uh, oh boy, ten. Ten. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's say you're having one of those high level discussions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's say you recognize like, oh, my heart rate's pumping. I'm breathing too fast. Maybe I'm out of line here, <laughs> right? Yeah. What What do you do? What's your count to ten? Take a walk around the block. What, what What's the Dan version of like, you know, hitting the pause button and becoming a better self uh, for her, so you can get through yeah. it. Yeah. Um. Man. Okay, so number one, the other part of selecting a good partner is getting one that is comfortable and confident enough to yell back at you when you're being an ass. Um, and I literally mean one of the, one of the times that uh, I think it was probably like the day where I went, wow, this girl is cool, was the day she really yelled at me for being a jerk. Like, I had worked a ton, and I went to Mexico for... I went and lived in a beach house with one of my buddies that was running Love Sack, and I went surfing all day. And I just kind of left for a week, and then just because I felt like it, I stayed another week and didn't even tell her, and I didn't have phone reception or anything at the time. So um, she came back, and she just went, you don't treat people like that, you dick. And um, that moment of just going, oh, I found someone that can tell me my business was incredibly uh, satisfying because I now, like, I found someone who genuinely makes me a better person, right? Um, I'm a, you guys can't see me, but I'm a big guy. I'm a 250-pound, 6'2", bearded. I mean, I look like Shrek with a beard 
And um, I can intimidate people and I don't realize it. In my head, I'm an 11 year old boy that's four feet tall, that is totally, you know, but I'm trudging around like a Clydesdale and that intimidates a lot of people and I don't realize it, which means I step over the line all the time without getting checked. She can check me and I actually really appreciate that. The other, what I try to do is oft, oftentimes, one, transcendental med meditation, um, if you can practice that, it's one of those things that everyone that does it loves it and no one does it enough that everyone even talks about it like they do it a ton. Okay. For everybody who, like me who doesn't know what it is, we'll put a link on the, we'll put a link on yeah. your page about it. Oh, well now it's getting big. Uh, go get Calm, the app. And uh, I mean, this is basically just sitting down and taking a half hour to clear your head, not think about stuff, clear your head. And uh, in the process of clearing your head, you'll realize that there's stuff that pops up into your subconscious that starts to tell you a lot about what's bothering you or about how you behave or that type of stuff. Um, and uh, it, if you get good at it, you can start to do it 30 seconds at a time, two minutes at a time, standing in a grocery line type stuff. Um, you'll start to reflect on your own behavior, realize what you regret, and the next time you start to engage in that behavior, you're that much more likely to catch yourself doing it. I've gotten better at it. I'm still... Man, do I still anybody trot over? People. <laughs> <laughs> um, anybody set a good example for you on how to be a good husband or or how to be a good boss? Chip Conley, the guy from earlier. Any uh, specifics that you recall that you try to emulate or that you hope to emulate? You know, you're working on the means, the method. Yeah, like what's some specific? So oh, yeah, any yeah, specifics yeah. that you yeah. are working on? So he's created an entire management style based off Maslow's hierarchy of needs. He goes through. All, you know, you, if you go past all of the, the physical, the air, water, shelter type stuff, you get up into the metaphysical and, and the social. And uh, he's broken that out into three pyramids that are basically just kind of the survival, if you will, where you're talking about um, people that are living paycheck to paycheck and how they get concerned with how they're going to make money, which means it's very hard if they're worried about making rent for them to focus on how they're going to solve your problems or how to solve the business problems. And then there's the people that are one level above them that start to have the paycheck to paycheck type of experience, but they realize that now it becomes a social need. And they start looking around at how they can impress and keep up with the Joneses, right? This is where this comes from is people in that kind of tier of influence. And once you get all the stuff to keep up with the Joneses and beat the Joneses, you realize that you never gave a crap about the Joneses in the first place. And it's time to really work on something that's a little bit bigger than yourself, do legacy type work. Um, so that's, that book peak that I mentioned earlier is his strategy for doing the math and figuring your, figuring yourself out on this, right? Where am I on this kind of hierarchy and what type of thoughts do I have that make me think I'm going to be happy, which usually don't lead to me actually being happy. Like, do I need money? It's like, you know, why people almost always switch over to about 74 grand. That's when they stop. That's when money starts, stops impacting their happiness. It's because you're past paycheck to paycheck. That's when you're starting to stock away stuff, debts coming down, retirement accounts filling up. And that's when now we need to start buying another car. It's not because you have excess money. It's because it's no longer a concern. And now impressing people matters. And when you get into impressing people, it's your job. It's your resume. It's your LinkedIn following and everything else. Um, and uh, that stuff works great for a little while until you just realize that you just don't care that much about what other people think. But... Finding that muse at the top of the pyramid, again, this is why I was looking at literature because that was the first one that I was really faced with. Was if I left a, a dent on this planet after I left, what would I want it to be if I could choose? Because that's the type of stuff that I'm willing to focus on after hours. And it's the type of stuff that I'm willing to sacrifice a weekend for because it's so rewarding. So understanding that about myself helps me walk other people through it. 
if I know a little bit about their situation, their age, their education level, their income, I can start to kind of predict what's going to be motivating for them and what I can remove as far as barriers that help them get to the next level. Um, if I'm working with people that are already making good money, I'm not going to bother with money. I'm, it's totally out of the equation. Most of the time, I mean, quite literally, it's, can I make them famous? Can I make them look really good to their peers? If it's my boss, same kind of thing. If everyone's, you ever worry about how do I manage my boss? You obviously, you can't give them money anyways, but just say no. If you could, it probably wouldn't help. The best thing you can do for your boss is make your boss look good. Get them promoted, huh? Get them promoted. Get your boss promoted. Um, so if you know if they're in that, that second sphere of kind of social needs, if they will, if you will, um, you start doing stuff like, well, I can offer them referrals. I can offer them a title. This is where titles really come in handy. We had that conversation. About. Yeah. <laughs> so every entrepreneur listening to this, Dan and I are firm believers in, you can actually get away with not paying people as much money if you're willing to give them a bigger title. Oh yeah. Which if, if cash is scarce, if cash is scarce, <laughs> this is a great reward. Don't forget that big titles are a different form of payment. What was yours? Because I get one of mine. I had one of my retail employees uh, chose the director of rock star relations. That was her title. <laughs> we had a grand poobah. We had the green. We had the queen bee. Um, but it worked fantastically. It cost nothing. Um, and it's one of those things that ends up being really important to people. I mean, if that's where they want to go type of thing, um, big, 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 big smile. Um, so if I'm working with uh, my peers and my clients, oftentimes the best things I can do, shout outs, promotion. And I'm happy to do it because I like them. It doesn't necessarily cost me anything, but just to even reinforce the fact that you really like someone's work uh, to tell the client, oh, by the way, this wasn't me. This was Gabby. Gabby is brilliant. Everything that's wrong with this is my fault. Everything that works on this is Gabby. Tell us who Gabby is. Oh, Gabby is our, uh, she's brilliant. She is absolutely brilliant. Um, and that's not a Freudian slip. She's genuinely brilliant um, as far as the uh, the conversation <laughs> goes. But Gabby Bargon is our um, director of marketing uh, for Crack the Crowd. She's in charge of kind of the influencer strategies, content strategies. She's super, super smart. I mean, she'd ghostwrite PhD, MBA professors, papers, and basically every client we have just goes, wow, that's, uh, she's good. She's extremely good. Um, so when I can, and she's done that work already and everything, I mean, just making sure that the client knows that she did it type of thing is uh, one of those things that I know really helps her because she's worked hard. She deserves the recognition anyways. Um, Which, as the face of the company, it's so easy for us to get credit for all our team's work, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that happens a ton. And it's... It's one of those things I actually consider a danger. I don't, if, I, if I'm advising a company and they're trying to take a tack and a strategy where they are the face of the organization, I get nervous uh, because it's pretty easy to take down a company that all you have to do is just make that one guy look bad. And there are absolutely, just so you guys know, competitors out there that are willing to do that. And uh, I mean, go look at like WikiLeaks. All they had to do was get, a, what was his name? Julian Assange, right? All they had to do is basically ruin his reputation to take down that organization, and you rarely see it in the press, even though it's operating. Uh, but he made it about him and not about WikiLeaks, and as a result, he became the target, and WikiLeaks is just kind of this, you know, half the people, people don't even recognize that it's still operating. So, yeah. share that wealth. Well, listen, uh, obviously, we're hugely appreciative um, at Child Rescue. Anybody who wants to see some of Dan's work, come to helprescueachild.org yeah. and uh, click on the button to see the campaign. Um, appreciate you making the time for us today. My and uh, thanks for being on. Cheers. Thank you. Appreciate it, everybody. And that's the show. Thanks for listening today. 
Again, if you're interested in the bonus materials that we will be producing, make sure to come to our website and join the Ideation Collective while it's still free. The website, iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. And as always, if you want to learn more about getting involved in helping the team rescue kids from traffickers, please visit iCollective.co slash childrescue. Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.